together. So let me pray as we dive in to God's word. Father, we thank you for this morning, and even as we wake up, we pray that your spirit would flood our hearts and minds with your light. Uh, that you would, in a way, pull the curtains and let your light come flooding in, that you might reveal who we are and where we are and where we struggle and where you intersect that uh, by your grace and by your love and by your truth. So, Lord, come and be with us and teach us your word. Uh, We need you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're tracking along, you may say, well, we were in this passage last week. We're in Genesis, the very end of Genesis 2 on into Genesis 3. And it is a very similar passage to what David Williams covered last week, but last week his focus was really on the fall, and my focus this week from the same passage is on the issue of shame. And so we'll cover some of the same ground, but hopefully cover it in a different way and go deeper. So this is God's word starting in Genesis 2.25, which is the last verse of that chapter, on into chapter 3 to verse 13. Says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This ends the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our lives. So what is shame? In the last few months, I've noticed an interesting dynamic in my life. I really struggle when I find out that people are disappointed with me. Say on four different occasions, I've learned that I've disappointed people. Uh, Once with a dad that I was coaching with, once with someone on staff, once with several leaders at the church, once with my wife, and I might add a fifth, I'm not sure. I walked to my office this morning and dropped some things off, and there was a package, and I opened it, and it was a book on discipleship, and I didn't see, there was no sense of who it was from. (laughs) I'm like, okay. Have we disappointed people in the way that we're making disciples? So five, maybe five. So all different situations, but I, note, I noted that my emotional response is similar. I feel like I've been exposed, like I failed, like I'm not enough. 
And I see, I've seen looking at these, how fear of man was working in my heart. I see that I sometimes care more about what people think about me than what the Lord thinks about me, but I didn't really see that there could be shame underneath that until I started preparing for this lesson. And I wonder, are you aware of how shame operates in your life? So what is shame? Uh, Ed Welch, who's a counselor, actually was my first seminary professor remotely. Uh, He has a book called Shame Interrupted. And there, Ed Welch says, shame is the deep sense that you're unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. So if you've ever heard the whisper, you're not enough, there's something wrong with you, you don't matter, you've probably actually heard the voice of shame. And shame makes us feel naked. There's this sense of being exposed. So you might ask, when have I felt exposed? Shame also makes us feel unclean. There's a sense of being dirty. When have you felt dirty? Shame also makes us feel like an outcast, like a reject. We are unworthy and unwanted. We could ask, when have we felt unworthy or unwanted? If we begin to answer these questions, we realize the depth and breadth of shame. And that's why it's hard to talk about shame because it can be really small and it can be really massive. And here's what I mean. We could be ashamed because someone belittled or embarrassed us. I still remember boys on a middle school soccer team that made fun of me because of something I said when I was going into the game. I kind of thought it was cool, and they thought it was not cool. (laughs) We could be ashamed because of something we did that was sinful, we think shameful, and we want to keep it a secret, like a struggle with pornography. We could be ashamed of how we failed. We could also be ashamed of how we handled success. I was thinking this week of how I was a good student in high school and I made good grades and I wanted to do well, but I also didn't want to do so well that it wasn't cool, right? Isn't that interesting? You could be ashamed for not doing well in school. You could be ashamed for doing too well in school. We could be ashamed to be associated with our parents or our grandparents because they were poor, or they were elitist, or they were racist, or they were whatever. We could be ashamed to be associated with something in our country's history, like how we've treated certain groups of people, or what's happening right now, or whatever. So at the micro level, shame leads us to hide from God and one another, but at the biggest macro level, shame could lead a nation to go to war with another nation. And in, in Shame Interrupted, Ed Welch argues that shame actually shows up in the Bible 10 times more than guilt. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? He says, guilt lives in the courtroom. We're guilty before the judge because we've sinned and the guilty person fears punishment and needs forgiveness. He says, shame lives in the community. And that's interesting. Even if we're not guilty, we can feel ashamed. And that makes us feel like we don't belong in the community because we're naked, unclean, rejected, unworthy because of something we've done or something done to us or something or someone we're associated with, we feel cut off from the community. And Welch says, the shame person feels worthless, expects rejection, and needs cleansing, fellowship, love, and acceptance. So guilt and shame, they they work together, they're related, but they're not the same. And at least in our corner of the world, maybe it's because there are a lot of lawyers in here, we focus more on guilt than shame. And I think that's potentially to our detriment. So what's the story of shame in your life? In what areas do you feel like you're not enough? When have you felt 
naked or unclean like an outcast? What have you done that you feel like has to be kept a secret? Or what's been done to you that you don't want to deal with? Why are you afraid and why do you hide? Whatever the story of shame in your life, the encouragement this morning is that you're actually not alone. That story intersects with the story of the Bible. And this passage in Genesis, very end of two and into Genesis three, shows us the origin of shame. And there's a lot to see here. So let's dive in. The first question I want to ask is, do we see the road to shame? And I I say that because even before uh, Adam and Eve fall, the serpent, Satan, has them on the road to shame. And that's fascinating. How did this happen to people who had not fallen? But I want to walk through it and point out some things. 2.25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Think about naked and not ashamed. Why would the Holy Spirit inspire Moses to write naked and not ashamed? This is the last word, like the icing on the cake of a very good creation. You could say anything about the pre-fall state of Adam and Eve. What would you say? They were beautiful and happy. They were peaceful and at rest. They were married and loving it. You know, you could say a lot of things. Moses writes, they were naked and not ashamed. Apparently, the story that's going to unfold is about shame and its remedy. The beauty of creation was this incredible vulnerability and also intimacy, being fully known and fully loved. Apparently, we were made for that to be completely vulnerable and completely loved. Genesis 3 answers the question, how did that all fall apart? And then the rest of the Bible, you could say, ask, how could we possibly get that back? 3.1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Think about crafty. Satan is shrewd, he's scheming, he's trying to trick her, which is interesting, right? Because he's offering her a good deal, but don't you feel ashamed and foolish when you get tricked? Eve doesn't even realize that she's on the road to shame, and neither do we. The passage says, he said, as in the serpent said. So this is a new voice. This is the insertion of a different voice from God telling a different story about the world. And this voice is questioning what God said from the very beginning, sowing seeds of doubt. Look at verse two. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So she engages the conversation. Nothing seems to you know, get her attention like, oh, wait, who's this? Should I trust this person? And she doesn't go to Adam or to God, and we find out later that Adam's actually there, at least at some point. So Satan has already quickly succeeded in cutting her off from the most important relationships in her life. And those relationships would be really helpful right now. It would be helpful to phone a friend, right? Have a lifeline. Because for some reason, she's actually misquoting scripture, And either Adam didn't tell her correctly what God said, or she didn't remember correctly, but there are gaps in her understanding, gaps that Satan can exploit, because she minimizes God's generosity about, you know, every tree in the garden is for you. And she adds this legalistic provision. He said you can't touch it, which he didn't say. And then she softens the warning about death. God said you'll surely die. She said we'll die. (laughs) So note, She's no longer talking with God. 
and talking with Adam in community with God. She's talking about God by herself with the devil. And Adam's there silent. Verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now that she's engaged, the serpent's attack is much more direct. He directly contradicts God's word, basically calling him a liar. You will not surely die. God said, you will surely die. And he basically says, God's not good. He's withholding something good from you. He knows something that would be good for you, and he doesn't want you to have it. He's not, he doesn't have your best interests in mind. Verse six, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. In a very short time, she is now in a position where she is going to re-narrate the story of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What was forbidden all of a sudden looks quite desirable And you can also notice the shift in the way she operates in the world from from hearing to seeing. God expected Adam and Eve, it seems, to hear his voice, to hear his word, to trust him, and then to obey. Now she's listening to another voice, and her eyes are seeing something desirable. She's closed her ears, in a sense, kind of hit the mute button and opened her eyes. What do I see? What do I like? What do I want? She's calling the shots now. And it says she took of its fruit and ate. So she's been on the road to shame, not knowing it. She's about to experience the reality of shame. But before we get there, let's step back, see what the enemy's done and what he intends to do with us. So the most important thing to see here is actually simple. Everything Satan does is intended to sever Eve's relationship with God. To this point, up to 225, she has been defined by her association with God and with Adam. She had everything she needed in a garden paradise, love, fellowship, naked and not ashamed. She, we, we sometimes joke, you know, I have no problems, you know, because compared to whatever else, I have no problem. She had no problems, literally. Everything was very good. But Satan gets her answering questions on her own, solving problems on her own, considering the character of God on her own, and ultimately sinning on her own until we learn that she invites Adam to come join and have some too. So he convinces her that God can't be trusted, that he's not good, that there's a better life for her if she would just go it alone. You can be like God. You can be God. You can decide what's right and wrong for you. So Satan gets Eve to trade the priority of her relationship with God and the beauty of her marriage with Adam for a piece of fruit. And the rest is history, right? And history repeats itself, sadly, every day. So can we see Satan's strategy in our own lives? The road to shame in in our lives is the same that Eve traveled. Satan wants to sever our relationship with God, cut off communication. He wants us to question his word, his character, his motives toward us. He wants us to believe God's not enough for us. And so therefore we must run somewhere else to deal with the, the feeling that we have that we are not enough. He wants us to stop talking with God and start talking about God if we're considering God at all. He wants us to stop talking with other people and get us alone by ourselves. And he wants us to be primarily associated with something other than God and people. 
So trade these life-giving relationships for something desirable in this world that we see as a worthy replacement. And as we walk down this road, he wants us to believe that it will actually be good for us. He wants us to look at death and say, that's life. And he wants us to have no idea that all hell is about to break loose. And that's what happens. So that's the first point. Do we do we see the road to shame? The second one, second question, do we feel the reality of shame? Looking at verses seven through 13. Verse seven, then the eyes of both were open and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Their eyes were open. This is one of the more fascinating things because in the offer to, to be God, to be like God, Satan doesn't say, and then you'll open your eyes and figure it out. He says, your eyes will be open. Well, by whom? So even in our reaching for something other than God, there's this sense that we can't do it ourselves. <laughs> Your eyes will be open. And their eyes are open, just like Satan promised. But it wasn't all that Satan promised. It wasn't a straight up deal. There was something wrong in the contract. They lost their innocence. They lost that naked vulnerability and that unashamed intimacy. And being naked was not a problem before. It's like they didn't even realize it before. And now they have this terrifying awareness of being exposed to the core and something's not right with me and I don't feel safe with you. So what do they do? Fig leaves and loincloths. They put a Band-Aid over a bullet hole. Verse eight, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? So they hid themselves. It's a brand new experience. They didn't have a category for hiding before because why would you hide from the Lord or from your spouse? They know you the best. They love you the most, but not anymore. For the first time, the Lord's presence is undesirable. The presence of Adam for Eve and Eve for Adam is undesirable. But God says, where are you? <clears throat> well, they're hiding in the trees they don't want to be with the Lord, but this is sort of the first sense of how the story is going to go, of how his grace is going to work, how his love is not going to quit. He wants to be with them. He's coming after them. And the rest of the Bible is a story of the Lord's relentless love for his sinful people, even when they want nothing to do with him. And Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So here is the movement of shame in verse 10. I realized I was naked, exposed. So I was afraid. So I hid. Naked, fear, hide. I feel vulnerable. I feel threatened. So I have to run and I have to hide. Amazingly, God says, who told you? I feel like as a parent, we would say, what have you done? We would come with a what question, right? God comes with a who question. <clears throat> and it underscores what we're saying. This is all about relationship. Who told you? Who'd you hear that from? Who got in your ear? Who's calling the shots? Why, why did you run from me? Where are you? It's relational, always will be. Well, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, I'll give you a who, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. 
Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, this is nothing new. Adam blames Eve, but he ultimately blames God. Eve blames the serpent. No one confesses. No one asks for forgiveness. Everyone blames. You've heard hurt people hurt people, shamed people shame people. And when we refuse to humble ourselves and own our mess, we try to put it on someone else, (laughs) even if that someone else is God. So we step back like we did before. How do we see the reality of shame in our own lives? In our shame, we feel naked. How do you feel exposed? When you come up short at work, maybe you long to get married, but so far you haven't been able to get married. Maybe you're married, but you struggle with a wandering eye, or you struggle like my marriage is not what it should be. Or when you blow up in anger, or when you make a foolish mistake with money, and we feel exposed, vulnerable, unsafe. Where have you felt this in your life? Where do you feel it even this morning? So when we feel naked, we are afraid. We're afraid of humiliation, we're afraid of failure. We're afraid to disappoint, like I described my issue at the beginning. We're afraid of rejection. Ultimately, we're afraid of abandonment, that we'll be left all alone by ourselves. So what are your fears? What's your nightmare? I mean, what if it happened would feel like, you know, I don't want life to keep going because that happened. And how do these fears control us on a regular basis? So we feel naked, we get afraid, and then we try to hide and try to cover ourselves. We hide from God as if that was even possible. What's your scheme for hiding from God? How do you do that? How do I do that? And we hide from other people. And we hide from ourselves, interestingly. There's, there's aspects of our struggle that we just want to ignore and pretend it's not there. We hide from ourselves. So where are you hiding What are your fig leaves and your loincloths? Where are you trying to band-aid a bullet hole? And it's not an easy conversation. I mean, I I felt heavy coming into this. I felt heavy because I was like, I have not thought about shame enough. I was ashamed at how little I thought of shame. But then I realized this is really big. This is significant. And Lord, you're going to have to do the work because we need to take this on. And it's hard and it's heavy, but it's incredibly important. I read this week that in Alcoholics Anonymous, they say we're only as sick as the secrets we keep. We're only as sick as the secrets we keep. And shame always wants us to keep the secrets and keep us sick. And really the question I think of like John 5 when Jesus goes to that guy who's been uh, sick or paralyzed or you know all that he's been dealing with for so long, he says, do you wanna get well? Do you wanna be healed? That's really the question. Do we wanna get well? Do we want to get healed or do we want to stay sick? Hopefully the answer is fairly clear, but it is a struggle because of the road to shame and the reality of shame. Final thing, final question. Do we know the remedy for shame? I'm going to try to do this without handling the rest of Genesis 3 because that's not my territory. Come back next week for that. So I'm going to do it in a different way. But it's clear we all struggle with shame. We all have a story of shame. It's a story of being associated with something other than God that starts to define us. So the remedy is along the same lines. It's to be associated with the Lord in a way that redefines us. So I want you to see that throughout Scripture, the Lord associates with people in their shame. 
And amazingly, we can become associated with him by grace through faith. So follow me. Trace the storyline of the Bible in the Old and the New Testament. This will be quick, but I think you'll start to see it. With whom does the Lord choose to associate? Jacob, a cheat and a scoundrel, right? The people of Israel, a small, unimpressive group of complaining, idolatrous people. Moses, a murderer. David, an adulterer who orchestrated the murder of an honorable soldier. Peter, a hot-headed fisherman who denied Jesus three times in the moment of need. Think about Saul slash Paul, a persecutor of the church who encouraged the murder of Christians. <laughs> That's my apostle. In Matthew 1, there's this genealogy. You know some of the people in Jesus' royal line, Tamar, Rahab and Ruth, go look them up. <laughs> All outcasts, outsiders, you could say covered in shame. And God ordained that these women would be great, great, great grandmothers of Jesus, now associated forever, the family line of the Messiah. So do you really think you're too far gone for the Lord to associate with you? Now think about the shame that Jesus experienced in his birth. A lot of times in the Old Testament, God would work through the barren woman, the, 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 the woman who was rejected. Mary's not the barren woman. She's the teenage virgin. That's worse. And before he was born, there was scandal, shame about Jesus and where he came from. And there was no room in the inn. He was born in a barn. There wasn't even a place, you know, a crib for him. When he was presented at the temple as a baby, they brought two pigeons because they couldn't afford the more costly offering. And then because of the infanticide, killing all the boys in the area, his family runs away to Egypt where his people had been enslaved more than a thousand years before. Talk about trauma. Do you think there are levels of shame to which Jesus can't relate? That's just like his first couple years. (laughs) Now think about the shame that Jesus entered into in his ministry. Early on, early on, people were calling him a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I think they thought it was an insult. I think Jesus thought it was a compliment. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In John 4, he intentionally goes through Samaria so he can meet with this Samaritan woman who's had multiple husbands and with someone now that she's not married to. In Matthew 8, this unclean leper approaches Jesus and Jesus heals him. In Luke 8, a woman bleeding for 12 years approaches him and Jesus heals her when she touches him. Who touched me? (laughs) He touched the untouchable, and they didn't make him unclean. He made them clean. He made them holy. And still, as Jesus did all this, think about this. This is all happening. And there were moments when his family was ashamed of him. They thought he was crazy. So Jesus walked around interacting with and absorbing all kinds of shame, but people didn't understand what he was going to do with it. So then think about the shame Jesus experienced in his arrest and his trial. The leaders, the religious leaders, they've been plotting for months, if not years, to put him away, and he knows that. And then when the night comes, his closest friends can't stay awake and pray with him. The sense of abandonment and my friends let me down. One of his 12 disciples sells him out and betrays him, and they arrest him like a criminal with swords. I mean, he's a teacher, he's a rabbi. And his friends all run away. And then the world puts God on trial. They bring false charges. They insult him. They mock him. 
They spit on him. They slapped him. They flogged him. They beat him probably past the point of recognition. It's actually a wonder that he made it to the cross. You think about that? How do you, how do you make it there? God, maybe God just sustained him. I mean, and that's remarkable too. They sentenced him to be crucified, which is the most gruesome form of capital punishment reserved for the worst kind of criminal. So imagine being the creator and your creatures want to kill you. <laughs> do you still think Jesus can't relate to you in your shame? But here's the most amazing part. Think about the shame Jesus experienced on the cross. He was naked, most likely, with his arms and legs nailed down. It was too graphic for the painters and the artists. You know, we want to cover him up. It's too much. But he had a crown of thorns on his head. He had criminals on either side. People hanging out there or walking by would mock him, hurl insults at him. It was this form of execution designed for maximum humiliation, for shame. We're gonna shame you so that other people will maybe stay in line. And that's, that's just the physical part of the cross. So beneath the surface, Jesus was experiencing the wrath of God towards sin. The cup of wrath, like all of God's wrath in a coffee cup and you've gotta drink it, all of it. So he was paying for the guilt of sin. He was carrying the shame of sin. No one has ever been more exposed, I think you could say. And Jesus had nowhere to hide. So on that tree, you could say it was the greatest good that we could ever see, and it was the greatest evil we could ever see. Talk about a tree of good and evil, right? Have you ever thought deeply about the vulnerability of God? <laughs> I'm not sure that I have. If I thought about it this week, if, it would have been easier for God not to create the world, right? It would have been easier for him to nuke Adam and Eve after this happens. <laughs> it would have been easier to destroy the whole world in the flood, not keep it going, with Noah and his family. It would have been easier to be done with Israel after the golden calf. Why does God keep coming back? Again and again and again, it would have been easier not to go to the cross, right? But the Lord never stops making himself vulnerable. <laughs> he continues to pursue, to love, to sacrifice, even to the point of death. C.S. Lewis once wrote, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. And I'm just realizing that that statement describes God's vulnerability as much as it describes ours. And here's the irony, because shame tries to convince us that we can't be vulnerable before God or other people. We must hide, or we will be rejected. But at the cross, we see the vulnerability of God on full display the cross means he knows our shame and he has come to carry it. He's come to take it away. Put it on me so I can give you something else. He knows the depth of our shame and he still loves us. So the very thing we fear the most, that kind of vulnerability, is the thing that he's gonna to use to heal us. And that's what's hard. By faith, we have to humble ourselves and make ourselves vulnerable to him. And then by faith, we are associated with him. The Bible says united with him, in Christ, connected to him. Because he took our shame on the cross so that he might give us all of his favor. And you can say that a bunch of different ways. We trade our rags for his riches. We trade our ugliness for his beauty. We trade our weakness for his strength. We trade our slavery for his royalty. 
We trade our shame for his honor. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, we trade our sin for his righteousness to cover us. So Jesus meets us in our shame and he embraces us there. We're not abandoned. We're actually accepted because of who he is and what he did. So if we believe this, we'll also learn to humble ourselves before other people because God has given us relationships with others as a sort of matrix for the gospel to work itself out. So we can't be a real sinner before God and then sort of be a non-sinner or a hypothetical sinner before others. If we're really being vulnerable with God, we will be vulnerable with our brother. And it's hard, but there's nothing like confessing your sin or your shame to a brother or to your wife and hearing them say, and Anne has said this to me before, I'm no different from you. (laughs) The Lord loves you. He forgives you. I love you. I forgive you. And I'm not going anywhere. I'll walk with you. It doesn't happen all the time. You know, we struggle to get there. And when we get there, sometimes it doesn't happen the way you want it to happen. But when it happens, it's never perfect. But in these moments, I think there's an echo of Genesis 2.25. It's the joy of the relationships with the Lord and with people. We come out of hiding. We get a taste. Relationships where we're known and we're loved. And it's an echo of where we were a long time ago. You know, like a garden that we've forgotten, but we, deep in there, we remember it. It's an echo, but it's also a preview of where we're going, naked and not ashamed. Jesus took our shame so that he might give us back the relationships for which we were made. Let's pray. Father, we come to you just wanting to be vulnerable. Uh, at the same time, we don't. Lord, but we thank you for what we see in Christ, that he's constantly humbling himself and making himself vulnerable, even to the point of dying on the cross. Lord, show us how, um, for many of us, maybe all of us, we've been on the road to shame, perhaps for a long time. And maybe this morning, we're just starting to see the reality of shame in our lives. Lord, if we see that, I pray that we wouldn't stay there, that we would see Uh, your remedy for shame, that we can be associated not just with these things that are shameful, but we can leave those things behind and be associated with you, be connected to you, be cleansed by you, be forgiven by you, be healed by you. So Lord, I pray that you would do the work in us today, that you would encourage us as we talk, that um, that you would do a great work. We thank you for these brothers and Pray that you would give them courage and help them to love one another well as we talk about these things in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.